0: Let's turn again this Lord's Day to chapter 6 of the book of the prophet Isaiah for our text. We're looking primarily at the uh, last part of the chapter, verses 8 through 13, but I'm going to read the entire text uh, of chapter 6 for us. Let's hear then uh, this portion of the Lord's Word as a message for us. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. God's word, we know, is the revealing of his redemptive plan to create to call into being a people for his glory, a people who will share that glory with him. And because that is the case, because it's the unfolding of God's redemptive plan, the historical context of passage of scriptures of scripture matters. And so last Lord's Day, we uh, took note of the relevance of the fact that that Isaiah said that his vision took place in the year of the death of King Uzziah. Uh, Uzziah's half-hearted obedience to God, his failure to eradicate pagan worship in Judah, and in particular, perhaps his usurping of the priestly role to himself, in an attempt to glorify himself, all, all of that contrasted sharply with Isaiah's vision of the Lord as, as holy. And Isaiah's confession of his sin and his confession of the sin of his people. So while Uzziah lived out his days quarantined as a leper away from Jerusalem and the temple... We saw Isaiah given forgiveness and welcomed into the very presence of God there in that wonderful vision. And I believe you and I were called to account by that uh, narrative to confess our sin and to receive God's forgiveness so that we, like Isaiah, can join in worship and service to the Lord. Well, today I want to draw your attention to the fact that there's a literary setting for this text as well. Uh, th- there is a significance to where it is in the Bible, of course. There's a significance to the fact that this is in the Old Testament, that it is in this book of Isaiah. But I want to be even even a little bit more narrow in your focus and, and, and notice that Isaiah is led to place this account of his calling to be a prophet, of his commissioning as a prophet, here in the book of Isaiah. Now, we might have expected, since it's the account of his call to be a prophet, uh, that it would come first. Uh, And in fact, this seems to be the norm among the biblical prophets who talk about their call in the book of Jeremiah, for instance. It Opens with the account of the Lord calling him to be a prophet, even though Jeremiah says, I'm really way too young for this, I'm not qualified, but that account of his call is put first in that long book of Jeremiah. In the book of Ezekiel, the book begins with a description of Ezekiel's first vision of the Lord uh, to preface the rest of the book, the book of Daniel opens with a narrative event of events in Daniel's life that led to his being uh, a spokesperson for God in a prophetic role, even though he was in a foreign country. and And likewise, the book of Hosea begins with the Lord stating and with Hosea stating an account of the Lord calling him to be a prophet. So. Because that's the normal pattern, and you can see why it would be logical for that to be the case, you want want to know that the prophet is called before you listen to his words. Why does Isaiah not do the same thing? Why doesn't his call come first in the book of the prophet Isaiah? Uh, Why doesn't he open with an account of this commission? Uh, Now, some critics of Scripture say, well, it's because, uh, it's because the, the book is really just sort of patched together from the writings of various people. Uh, so they would argue that, uh, well, the editor just hasn't done a really good job here. If he'd really been on the ball, he would put the account of, God, of Isaiah's commissioning first in the book, because that would be more logical. Uh, but... But I think there, there's a much more reasonable answer to that question. We don't have to make guesses about how to cut this book up and, and, and ascribe it to different authors. Rather, we just want to take the book as it is and ask ourselves, okay, what, how does this help us? How does Isaiah's arrangement of the book help us in understanding the book as a whole and understanding this particular passage? Uh, in in view today. And and I think we'll see that an important thing that that does for us is help us to understand these verses in the chapter that I just read that that seem to be really difficult to understand at first. Uh, Verses 8 and following really seem perplexing on first glance. But I think if we go back and and look at the setting, take note of what's happening in chapters 1 through 5, we'll see that we're aided to understand that. Uh, In the first five chapters of Isaiah, then, what he's really doing is introducing us to the whole scope of his message. In other words, he's giving us a summary. This is going to be a long book. There's going to be 66 chapters in this book. It's one of the longer books in the Bible, and so so Isaiah, to to help us in understanding the book as a whole, gives us a summary of his message in those first five chapters, and you can see how that is helpful to us in understanding the book, to have the big picture before we then sort of dive into the details in chapter six and following. So that helps us in terms of the book as a whole, but it but it also helps us to understand the this perplexing word of the Lord that we hear in this text why is it he 's telling Isaiah to go to people and tell them not to listen why, why is he telling people that telling Isaiah that the more he preaches the more they are going to reject his message what 's going on here well we can we can understand the lord 's Words if we take into account that summary that, that Isaiah has given us of his prophetic message and of the state of Judah at the time in which he is called to be a prophet. And especially I'd like to focus your attention in on chapter 5. In chapter 5 of Isaiah, the, the prophet sings a song. He sings a song that that describes the people of Judah and also God's relationship with them. So turn back to chapter 5 just for a second and, and look at some of the highlights here. Look at, he begins the the, uh, the song there in the first verse of chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. Uh, Isaiah usually calls God the Holy One. Here he's calling him my beloved. Really, a very personal name for God, isn't it? We're going to come back to that later. But he's saying, okay, I'm singing a song that is going to portray God's relationship with his people, Judah. And so he goes on to describe in verse 2 that the preparation of the ground for a vineyard. The the ground is broken up, the stones are removed, it's cleared and 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 it's planted with choice vines, not just ordinary plants, but the very best of the grapevines. And and not only that, the the imagery of a watchtower is used to show that there is special care taken for this vineyard, that workers are right there on the site to protect the vines from being damaged by wild animals or perhaps being damaged by people that would come to steal from it. And he even hewed out a wine vat right there in the vineyard so the grapes could be crushed right fresh from the vine. He did everything to make this. In other words, a a wonderful, perfect vineyard. And yet, at the end of verse 2, we're told, it produced bad fruit. He's done everything for it, but it produced bad fruit. Now, in the fourth stanza of the song, if you you skip down to verse 7, Isaiah identifies the vineyard, as the people of Israel and Judah. They are that vineyard. They are the ones that God has done everything for. Think back on the history of the Israelites. They were just just a mob of slaves in Egypt. And he rescued them. He defeated the most powerful nation in the Middle East to rescue them. And he brought them out and he he fed them and gave them water in the wilderness. He he brought them into this this beautiful land to make their own. He defeated enemies before them. He gave them his word. He spoke to them through Moses, his prophet. He he gave them the the best law that, that the world has ever known. He he sent them prophets Uh, He gave them godly men to call them in the right way. He's done everything for Judah. And yet the result is bad fruit. Look at some of the images of that bad fruit in this song of of Isaiah's in chapter 5. Look at verse 7. He looked for justice, but instead there was bloodshed. He looked for them to do right, in other words, toward one another, and they did not. He looked for righteousness, and instead there's a cry. The the implication is a cry cry for righteousness that's not there. Verse 8, he pronounces a woe on those who, who greedily accumulate more and more. They buy up more and more property and force people off their land so that they can have more. They rise early in the morning, verse 11, and, and seek constant entertainment. Their lives are nothing but seeking entertainment. And they don't care about any other people. The vineyard, yielding bad fruit, is an image for Judah and its immorality. That's what we're to see here. They've taken God's good gifts and use them for their own selfish ends. So that's the setting then in which we hear God speak in our text in verse 8. This is the first time that, that God has spoken, that the whole vision is about God, really. But interestingly, it's not till this point that we actually hear him speaking the The implication seems to be that that before God calls Isaiah, he has to cleanse him. Before there's a commissioning, there has to be a cleansing. He's going to send Isaiah after he has prepared him. From the sinner's perspective, we could say that repentance must precede witness the sinner who has repented who is able to call others to repentance. And so, after Isaiah has been cleansed, he hears the call of the Lord there in verse 8, and he responds immediately, very forthrightly. Uh, literally, he, he calls out, in a sense, here, here I am, over here, send me. He's ready to hear this call. And he responds immediately. And so God is, God is pleased to commission him and given, gives him then his calling that we referenced earlier in verse 9. Here's what, here's what your message is, Isaiah. Here's the response to your message. And here's what you call out to people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their ears and hear eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed the natural disposition of sinners like those in Judah in Isaiah's day is to be hardened by the preaching of the gospel that's what God is is saying to Isaiah here they they hear the truth but they don't understand it because they refuse to understand it to acknowledge it as true they see the truth but they re- refuse to perceive it and when that happens their hearts that is their inmost being and in Hebrew the heart is the the mind as well as the emotion and it's, their, it's your inmost being. That becomes insensitive. That, that's the imagery there of, of fat. A, a, a fat-covered heart is insensitive. And so that's the effect that these people's resistance has had. And even for, even for God to refer to these as this people is sort of an implication of his displeasure with them rather than calling them my people, he calls them, this people. He's giving Isaiah a hard, hard word here. But we could have expected that from the summary that, that we saw in the beginning of Isaiah, in the very first verses of Isaiah, chapter 1, beginning of verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Here is what he spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forgot, forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And so what, what happens when people resist, when people say no to the word? Well, they're they're hardened in that. So in, in verse 10, we really see what inevitably happens when people suppress the truth. This is very similar to what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1 when he's talking about the condition of fallen men. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's not that they don't know. They suppress what they know. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And the result, their foolish hearts were darkened. And and, and so Paul goes on to describe this process of hardening with a repeated phrase. He says over and over again, God gave them up. He gave them up to the lust in their own hearts. He gave them up to dishonorable passions. He gave them up to a debased mind. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that God let them go the way they wanted to go. And every time God's word is proclaimed, every time God's word is proclaimed, it has this effect in those who refuse to receive it. Remember that passage in Isaiah 55 where God says, My word does not return to me without accomplishing its purpose. God's word has the purpose of bringing repentance to those who are willing to bow the knee, those who are willing to confess their sin. But it brings hardening for those who refuse. And Isaiah is being told, the people of Judah have reached the state where your message is going to harden them in their sin. They're going to reject what you have to say. Now, someone who's received the gospel, someone who's repented and received forgiveness, is grieved by that. And I think that's why Isaiah cries out what he does in verse 11 How long, O Lord? How long will this continue happening? How long will they reject the message? He's received the message. He wants others to receive it as well. And so he, he cries out, How long? And, and the word from the Lord, beginning there in verse 11, then, well, it, until destruction falls. The exile is inevitable at this point, it's bound to happen the rulers of Judah have refused to put their trust in God. They put their trust in politics instead, in military might instead. And so, for instance, uh, Isaiah will go to Ahaz, and he'll try to encourage Ahaz to depend upon the Lord. And Ahaz will, will will act holier than thou and say, oh, no, I'm not going to trouble the Lord by this and, and go off and make an alliance with Assyria, the very empire that will devastate the land. But before the book of Isaiah is over, we'll see Hezekiah proudly showing off his wealth, to emissaries from Babylon, the very nation that will take the people into exile. Isaiah is being told, judgment is going to come. Look at the judgment. See, see, see how the judgment fits the the crime. That the covenant people of God have been given everything, including this covenant land, and yet they've broken covenant with God, and so they're going to lose the land. The land was part of the promise. And since they've broken their promises to God, they're going to lose the land. And so the land's going to be devastated. He says, on another occasion, you failed to observe the Sabbath years. You failed to give the land rest. I'm going to give the land rest because I'm going to kick you off of it. And I'll let that land have some rest that you wouldn't give it. And So verse 12, the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Devastation is going to fall on the people of Judah. It's inevitable, God says to Isaiah. And even though, verse 13, then even if a tent is preserved, it's going to be burned over. So the image is, is one of a fallen forest that's been burned over. The land is totally decimated. But, but, there's that tiny little note of hope that you probably already saw at the end of verse 13. Verse 13, we're given the image of a tree that's been felled and fire has passed over it. But there is a holy seed in it's stump. See that at the end of verse 13? Despite the devastating judgment, a remnant will be left. There will be a remnant of people that God reserves for himself even in the midst of this devastating judgment. In a very real sense, Isaiah's ministry hardens the majority, but it it ministers to this remnant. There will be just a few who continue to follow God there'll be four young teenage boys who are hauled off in deportation to Babylon, probably walking barefoot in rags all the way. They're going to maintain their faith in God, and God is going to preserve them there in Babylon and raise them up as a witness to him, and one of them, Daniel, will be An awesome prophet. God is going to preserve a remnant of people for himself. But of course, this this remnant imagery finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus himself. Isaiah will say this in chapter 11 of Isaiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Hear that imagery taken from chapter 6? A shoot coming up from the stump of the tree. A shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Hear the... Echo of the ears and eyes there, he won't judge by earthly standards, in other words. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Ultimately, we see in this call of Isaiah a promise Of the Messiah, the anointed one, who will effect that atonement that Isaiah was figuratively given in his vision. Remember that? Remember that that burning of his mouth with the coal from the altar by taken by the seraphim? And then the seraphim says, Your sin is atoned for. Okay, it's this one who is the seed of Jesse, the seed of David, Jesus, who makes that atonement possible. So ultimately, this passage, of course, takes us to Jesus. But there's an application for us as well, of course. We'll consider next Lord's Day how Jesus uses this text from Isaiah, but, but let's focus on seeing, seeing our calling here as well. Isaiah is given a message that has a hardening effect upon those who refuse to repent. It's a gospel message. It's a message of atonement by Jesus Christ. But it has the effect of hardening people who refuse to admit their sin. Now, the gospel message today does the same thing. And you should expect that in this world. I mean, just think of it for a moment. Is there, is there any reason for us to think our nation is less corrupt than the Judah of Isaiah's day? Is our government more just than King Uzziah's? Isaiah rebukes his government for failing to bring justice to the fatherless. Remember that from the summary chapters in the beginning. Every elected representative of New Hampshire in our nation's capital sanctions the killing of human beings in the womb. Is that justice for the fatherless? Isaiah compares Jerusalem and Judah in those opening chapters to Sodom and Gomorrah. Are the sexual ethics of our culture any better? Isaiah rebukes the people of his day for their greed, wanting ever bigger houses, and desiring constant entertainment. Does American culture look any different? As followers of Christ, we are called, like Isaiah, to preach the gospel to a people who will be hardened by it because they don't want to let go of their sin. We can expect rejection, opposition, and persecution— and that's going to be hard to deal with, especially when it comes from somebody that you love, someone you care for. But if we refuse to preach this gospel, we run the risk of becoming insensitive to it ourselves. So this passage asks you, are, are there aspects of God's call to repentance and self-denial to which you have turned a deaf ear? Any parts of God's word that you sort of don't hear anymore because they get too personal? How can you be on guard? How how can you keep yourself from becoming callous to God's word? How can you how can you avoid going down this slippery slope of becoming insensitive and dull to the truth of God? Well, I think Isaiah points us in the right direction. In the positive direction. Go back to the beginning of Isaiah 5. The beginning of that song. Remember what he called God? Twice in that first verse, he calls God my beloved. My beloved. How is it that Isaiah came to call the Holy One who terrified him in his holiness, my beloved. Well, I'm sure you've already seen the answer in chapter 6. It's because this holy God has extended to Isaiah atonement, forgiveness, cleansing Isaiah realized, remember in in chapter 6 there, he cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And, and, And he admits there that God's wrath justly falls on him, and yet, instead of giving him what he deserved, God extended to him forgiveness and cleansing at the very point that he realized that he was justly condemned. Isaiah heard that word of atonement and (laughs) forgiveness. No wonder he calls God, my beloved, because he has seen the awesome love of God for him, a sinner. The Lord did a very similar work in the mind and heart of a sinful woman, probably one who had lived a life of sexual promiscuity. We're told about it in Chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii, the other fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? She loved much. The eyes of this sinful woman were open to see the love of God in Jesus Christ. The father loved his children with such a great love that he gave his beloved son to make them his own. If you begin to appreciate the father's love, then you will desire to give yourself to him. The Son loves sinners with such passion that he came to lay down his life for their eternal salvation. If you begin to perceive the depth of that love, then you will desire to lay down your life for him. The Holy Spirit loved those chosen by the Father and redeemed by the Son while they were still dead in sin. And the Spirit caused them to be born and lives in and through them. If you begin to understand the love of God, the Holy Spirit then you will want to be led and strengthened by him. The way to avoid becoming callous toward God's word and truth is to understand more deeply the love of God for sinners in Jesus Christ. Because the more that you loved him, because he loved you, the more you will go to his word to find the way to please him and show your love for him. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you for the wonderful grace that you've shown to sinners in opening their hearts and ears and eyes to see your love in Jesus Christ. Lord, make Make this gospel more and more precious to us with each passing day. May may we love you more because we see more and more of your grace and mercy toward us. Give us that that passion to please and, and honor you because we love you, because you are our beloved. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.